from KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. Baking season lasts 365 days in my house, but with the holidays fast approaching and now that it has finally dipped below 70 degrees in L.A., turning on the oven just feels right, which is why we're devoting today's show to baking, cookies, cakes, and, of course, pie. It's been a few years since we last congregated in person to revel in our collective pie obsession at Good Foods Annual Pie Contest, and I think that's why the need to parse the importance of pies has become even greater. So I'm thrilled to be able to break intellectual bread with Rossi Anastapulo, who took her obsession with the circular pastry to look at the history of our country. Hi, Rossi. Welcome to Good Food. I'm so happy I get to talk to another pie obsessive. Yes, it's so great to be here. You might say that pie is like baked into the U.S. When did we first start eating them? So pie in the United States really started um, in what we think of as this country before we were even a country. It came over with the first colonists um, who brought their own history of pies in British and European culinary traditions. Um, and when they arrived to these shores, continued to bake them here, you know, using and adapting to what they had, um, which wasn't always quite as extensive as they might have had back home. Things like apples didn't grow here when they first showed up. Um, only crab apples were growing in North America. So apple pie, even as we think about, um, wasn't wasn't quite here at the outset. That was had to wait until people started planting and cultivating apples. We have to talk apple pie, obviously. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's my favorite, and you have really deep links to it, too. Tell us your pie origin story. My pie story started when I was very young. I don't even remember it. That's how long I've been making it. But every year in October, I make apple pie for my dad on his birthday. Um, He is the kind of person who does not like cake. He never has. And he always requested an apple pie. And that is something that first my mom and I made. And then as I became, um, you know, a baker in my own right, I started making on my own and graduated from the, the you know, store-bought Pillsbury crust to starting to make my own crust and um, refining this. And the key hallmark is that we always cut his name, Akeem, into the crust whenever we bake it. And I actually baked it a couple weeks ago for his birthday this October. Um, and it's really when I first fell in love with pie and I think it exemplifies you know, the kind of pie relationship that so many people in this country have and how special this dish can be despite how humble it can be. Why is apple pie the pie? That's the example of American identity. I think it comes back to um, partially its roots in British culinary traditions and that the origins and the original British colonists who um, set up shop here in the United States and went on to found this country. And then at the same time, we start to see a real swirl of American as apple pie and this association of apple pie with patriotism and, you know, American identity. And it starts a little bit towards the end of the 19th century, but really kicks up in the beginning of the 20th century. And certain things like war um, really push that along. So at the start of, or during World War I, American soldiers abroad um, lamented over not having mom's apple pie um, or, you know, how much they wanted to eat apple pie once they came back home. So apple pie, in many ways, became a symbol of the home that they'd left behind and the country that they were fighting for. And that's something that continued 
into World War II as well. American as apple pie started to crop up as a saying that was used in things like suit advertisements and movie posters and even political campaigns. And also people sort of grasped American apple pie as this symbol to compare themselves to other countries. So apple pie was deemed better than French dishes, um, once again, getting back to France or even better than English dishes, you know, which is kind of funny when you think about the real origins of this dish. And so apple pie became this um, symbol of identity that a lot of Americans started to use to compare and kind of assert themselves over other nations as a way of manifesting patriotic pride. I have friends who would fight me if I called quiche a pie, but for you, I'm going to cave. Um, (laughs) I remember making my first quiche Lorraine from a Julia Child recipe. It was just divine, filled with eggs and leeks, bacon and cheese and cream. Truly, I, I don't make it enough. Why did quiche fall out of fashion? Quiche, I totally hear you also on the um, potential controversy of classifying quiche as a pie. Um, I think I even call that out in the book in anticipation of some people, you know, maybe having some words about that. Um, But quiche really became this sort of lightning rod in the early 80s when a book called Real Men Don't Eat Quiche was published. And it was a satirization of the idea of what manly men did and what they did not do, which included eating quiche. Um, And even despite the obvious humor in the concept, real men don't eat quiche became uh, a real thing and something that people used and gravitated towards and it expanded beyond just maybe that simple phrase. But it's, you know, you mentioned Julia Child. There's association with things like France, which funnily enough, you know, there was a certain subset of American men who deemed France and French culture as something that was more feminine and French men as less masculine. And so Quiche's association with France kind of hurt it in that regard. The same goes for its association with vegetarians, also considered not manly, um, and its association with counter cuisine and counterculture and the sort of quote unquote hippie movement, which once again, you know, a certain subset of Americans might have deemed not truly masculine. And so quiche somehow, this simple egg-based dish that I agree is incredibly delicious, became became a, I don't know, a lightning rod and example, I guess, of strict gender divisions and a certain type of reaction to second wave feminism. Rossi, could you please read Pie for a Doubting Husband? <laughs> yes. So Pie for a Doubting Husband comes from 1915's The Suffrage Cookbook, and it calls for one quart milk of human kindness, eight reasons, which include war, white slavery, child labor, eight million working women, bad roads, poisonous water, and impure food. And the directions say to mix the crust with tact and velvet gloves using no sarcasm, especially with the upper crust. Upper crusts must be handled with extreme care for they quickly sour if manipulated roughly. So interesting. Thank you so much, Rossi. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real joy. That was Rossi Anastapulo. Her book is Sweet Land of Liberty, A History of America in 11 Pies. Such a fascinating read. Coming up, Pepper Cocker, Thumbprints, Snickerdoodles. Cookies get all the fun names. And a new cookie Bible will teach you how to make them all. Stay close. 
Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Welcome back to Good Food. When Rose Levy Berenbaum came out with the first edition of the Cake Bible in 1988, it became, at nearly 600 pages, well, a Bible for home bakers. It's the sort of cookbook you refer to again and again as a trusted reference on technique, but it's also an encyclopedia of recipes. Now, Rose is back with another epic book, and just in time for the holidays. It's, you guessed it, the Cookie Bible. Hi, Rose. Hi, Evan. It's great to be back after all this time. I know. It's <laughs> but wonderful. not since the Cake Bible, of course. It was just <laughs> since the last book. <laughs> yeah. But the Cake Bible is coming up on an important anniversary, isn't it? Yeah, it's now 33, no, 34 years old. Well, at any rate, it's about to be 35. That's amazing. So That's just we're amazing. Doing- but let's talk about l- those little cakes called cookies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm so curious, when you started talking to people about this book and about cookies in general, are chocolate chip cookies always the starting place? Is that the first cookie people want to talk about? I love that you asked that because I thought, why do a a chocolate chip cookie? Everybody has one. It's already out there. And somebody said to me, I forget who, we would want your chocolate chip cookies, how you feel about it. And I thought, yeah, they're right, because it's never actually been my favorite cookie. I found it too sweet and even too salty in some parts. And how can I make it the best it possibly can be? And that's when I decided that I would try using brown butter and not just clarifying the butter till it's brown, but including the milk solids for extra flavor and, and then adding some corn syrup to give it more of a sticky quality and a chewy quality. So I went from there to coming up with a chocolate chip cookie that really was mine. That's that's one of the main reasons why all of us love your recipes so much. The way you write, you always put it in a flavor context and texture context by explaining what your ideal is, because your ideal may not be everybody's ideal. And then you link the techniques to create that idea in the head note which allows us to understand what we're going to do in the recipe, which I find to be incredibly valuable. Can you see me smiling? (laughs) (laughs) When you started off, I started smiling and I haven't stopped since the end of the paragraph, I should say. Yeah, you know, the head notes are my favorite part. I love telling people what to expect and also how they can make the recipe their own if they want to change it. Because... People are afraid to make changes, and they've been told many times that baking is, as opposed to much savory cooking, you have less leeway to make changes. That's true. And one of my least favorite words, well, there are two words. When they start off with, can you, I always know the third word is going to be substitute. Everybody seems to want to substitute and make something to make it their own, to put their stamp on it. So I thought, let me tell you right off the bat what you can do to make it your own. 
in my opinion. I mean, they may be wanting to add other things because one person once when I was doing Macy's Degustibus, she asked, she stood up, she raised her hand, she said, can you substitute something for the banana in the banana cake? And I said, well, why make the banana cake then? Make a cake that doesn't have bananas. But my editor's husband, who was so wonderfully sarcastic, said, he yelled from the audience, yes, watermelon. You know, he was trying to show the absurdity of it. I don't know what this is about substitute, but I think I got a sort of inkling idea when I mentioned that it's to make it your own. It's to have it be not roses anymore, but Aunt Sally's or Grandma's or whatever, or Evans. But you have to start, in my opinion, and I should say that I'm constitutionally incapable of following a recipe, including my own, but I try really hard to always make a recipe the first time the way it's written and then I understand how I can make a change. Yeah, me too. And in fact, I sometimes break my own rules. And then I think, yeah, but I wrote them. I can bake them. Once I found myself saying, it says, and then I realized I'm the it. You know, I don't have to follow it 100%. <laughs> it's not a hoot. Oh, so funny. Yeah. Um, the way cookies are named is so different than any other kind of food. There's something playful yet descriptive and sometimes very traditional about them and we hold on to the traditions. So I'm going to ask you about a few. The pepper cockers. Oh, I'm so glad you asked for that one. Well, it has lots of spices in it, which makes it so special, and even cayenne pepper. But that's a recipe from my husband, Woody. And his he does Tai Chi. And in the Twin Cities, his Sifu's mother had this recipe. I think she's Swedish, and it's a Swedish cookie. And I used to think that the word kakar, a cookie, was kind of a Yiddish word, which isn't a very favorable term, but in Dutch and in Swedish, it means cookie. And they have also clove and cinnamon. And his daughter found some in her desk drawer that he made for her three years ago, and they still were crunchy. Of course, it wasn't human. But they, but all those the idea spices. That I, the idea that I would have cookies in a drawer for three years without eating uh, them within too. the first, you know, minute... No, they got buried. But, you know, also ginger is a preservative, as you know, and ginger is in the pepper cockers. And, and people are so addicted to them, and they ride the cusp of sweet and savory. They're great with cheese, and they're great with just by themselves. So let's talk about shortbread for a minute. Can you use it as an example of taking a, just, you know, a basic and very widely known cookie and making it your own? Actually, I've tried every single possible flour and flour mixture, including rice flour to make it crisper and different types of sugar. And I always go back to my basic standard one. But recently, I think in this book, it's included is using brown sugar because it gives it a wonderful flavor. That's the Muscovado shortbread cookies. Yeah. And I always mention Muscovado because it really has so much more flavor, but brown sugar is still wonderful. Um, You know, I make my own brown sugar. By adding molasses, you mean? Yeah, just because I hate what running out. I mean, when I run out, and I used to panic, um, if I ran out of brown sugar, then I was like, oh, I don't need to panic. No, what I hate is how it clumps. I mean, not when you make your own, but when you buy it. If you don't keep something soft and moist in the, in the jar or the container, you, and if you don't think of it ahead, it takes at least eight hours to soften the brown sugar. 
when you make your own, it never clumps. Exactly. Tell us about the caramel surprise snickerdoodles. Oh, yeah, those are one of my favorites. And one of my favorite photographs, and maybe the top one in the book. But originally, I tasted these cookies at Gramercy Tavern, Miro Uskokovic is the pastry chef and a really good friend. And when I bit into the cookie, this caramel oozed out. I mean, not it didn't flow out, but it came out in a wonderful texture. So I begged him for the recipe, and he gave me a recipe for 400, and I worked it down. <laughs> and then when I... <laughs> He said, do you mind? But it's in grams, so it's not a problem, you know. Anyway, the thing is that I made it, and all, and partway through the baking, it opened up, and the caramel started coming out prematurely. So I finally got it to work, but it was so difficult. I asked him, How, what happens when you do it? Why doesn't that happen? And he said, oh, some of, many of them do. I just have them. He has a whole bunch of people working for him. So he said, I just have them make more because it's such a nice thing to have that surprise. So I decided, down with the surprise. Let's let people see what's in there and make the caramel and apply it afterwards. It's The texture of the caramel is so perfect. I can roll it out when it's set and stamp it out. But I didn't give that technique because I don't think most people would want to do that. And it's easy enough when it's still slightly warm to just spread it on. The cookie that I have to say I was most happy to see in the book was the the thumbprints, which you also give an alternative presentation as a Linzer bar. And mm. this is like one of the like major sort of Madeline kind of mm. memories for me from childhood. And Recently, when I would start to look for thumb, jam thumbprint recipes, so many of them have no ground almonds or, or walnuts or pecans in the dough. They just are rolling them. And yours is that kind of great sandy textured ball I'm looking for. Yeah, and kids can do this and they love doing them so much. That's one of the great things about cookies is that it's a great family participation kind of thing. In fact, a friend of mine, when I wrote the first book, The Rose's Christmas Cookies, I wrote in it about how when she would go home to Ohio every Christmas, her mother would save some of the dough to shape with her because she said, when your hands are busy, you find you can say things you might not feel comfortable saying if they weren't. Isn't that a beautiful tradition? Oh, I absolutely think it's true. Are you one of those bakers who enjoys sending care packages? Do you ever send cookies in the mail? I used to. When relatives were had moved far away, such as my brother who's in San Francisco area. And one of the things I think the traditions that I've written about is that the nicest gift is to give cookies with a recipe with a cookie cutter if it's used for that cookie or a cookie in a cookie tin that's decorative. I think that's one of the most personal and desirable gifts that you can give. Thank you so much, Rose. As always, we could just go on talking forever. I so appreciate this book. Well, I look forward to writing another book so we can get back together again. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Yeah, that was Rose Levy Berenbaum, the James Beard and IACP award-winning author of 12 cookbooks. Her latest is The Cookie Bible, an epic 448-page work that covers everything from lemon lumpies and coconut snowball kisses to black tahini crisps and pineapple biscotti and, of course, chocolate chip cookies. We have two recipes from Rose for you on our website. Find both her pepper cocker, 
and the caramel surprise snickerdoodle recipes at kcrw.com slash good food. Sugar, of course, is the foundation of baking. It becomes a liquid, creates texture, and infuses dishes with sweetness. Over the years, many cooks have tried to create bakes using less sugar or sugar substitutes, some artificial, some natural, but with little success. Brian Levy is a pastry enthusiast who was inspired to forge a different path, one that produced desserts that were good and sweet. Hi, Brian. Hi. What kind of tinkering in the kitchen led to this desire of yours to crack the code of sweet bakes without any of the usual ingredients that we rely upon for sweetness? Well, before the tinkering came the the idea from having a really sweet fruit, which was a mango, and it struck me that I should be able to make a dessert out of it without adding any extra sugar because it was exactly the sweetness that I wanted a dessert to be. And so I tried making a mango custard out of it because that seemed the most appropriate thing to make texture-wise. And when that worked, I moved on to things like cakes and cookies. And it took a lot of tinkering. I had to try all kinds of ingredients that I'd either never heard of or never used or had never used in the way I was using them. So maybe just to give us some context, tell us what you don't use for sweetness and tell us a few of the things you do use. So I don't use cane sugar. I don't use maple syrup or honey or agave or any of the chemical-based kind of sweeteners or mixes of things like stevia with chemicals, monk fruit. I was interested in using the closest thing to whole food ingredients as possible. So fruits and dairy ingredients and even flowers that are sweeter and grains and nuts and fermented things like miso paste and sweet wines that don't have any sugar added to them, but that just aren't left to ferment all of their sugars into alcohol. Beyond sweetness, um, what purpose does sugar serve in a recipe? So when when you took it out, these sweeteners that we're so used to relying upon, what were some of the issues that you found? And maybe share some of your first successes. Part of it, it's not just a matter of taking it out, but it's a matter of what I put in because what I put in inevitably brought things along with it other than sugar. So namely fruit in either fresh dried form or freeze dried. It brings along with it all these nutrients and fiber and stuff that you don't normally add into a recipe when you're just adding cane sugar. So dealing with those additional, most mainly fiber, was a big challenge. The issue was that fiber in the fruits was sucking up a lot of the moisture. So I took the lead from Rose Levy Barenbaum, who pioneered the reverse creaming technique for cakes, where she coated flour in butter to prevent gluten from developing. 
And I kind of applied, I just applied that to fiber and coating things that contain a lot of fiber in a fat prevented it from sucking up all the moisture in a recipe. So give me a really specific example. So I have a blueberry ricotta pound cake. And the blueberry element in that is freeze-dried blueberries. And the freeze-dried blueberries bring a lot of flavor and sweetness, but they also contain a lot of fiber. So if I were to combine the ingredients of the cake as you would with a conventional cake recipe, the pulverized freeze-dried blueberries would suck up all the moisture and it wouldn't end up being a very nice texture for a cake. So what I do is combine the freeze-dried blueberries with the dry ingredients, the flour, and then that gets coated with butter and that prevents the that prevents the fiber in the freeze-dried blueberries from sucking up all the moisture and you end up with a nice moist cake texture with a good crumb. And you know, when we were baking and we look at the ingredient list and let's say you're making something that maybe has two and a half cups of flour and maybe there'll be a cup of sugar or three quarters of a cup of sugar. So for example, in that recipe that you just told us, how much of the of the freeze-dried blueberries are we using? So it's a couple cups worth. In order to get the sweetness you want for a cake, you do need to use a lot of this stuff. But then I'll amp it up with, so there are also chopped dried figs in that cake. So that complements the the flavor and the sweetness. But when you mentioned a cup of sugar in a typical recipe, that's one of the things I always had in mind when I was developing these recipes was like, I'd really like to think of sugar, cane sugar, more like the way we think of salt. We would never add a cup of salt to a recipe and and not think it was crazy. And I would like to think of sugar more as like a a, a finishing kind of seasoning than the way we use it now. Yeah, it was so interesting as I was paging through the book, which I found incredibly fascinating. The first thing I noticed that I had to like wrap my head around were the quantities of these other ingredients. Like you have a recipe for key lime pie and mm-hmm. the primary sweetener there is a type of, of raisin. Yeah, Hunza raisins. Hunza raisins, which are those kind of goldeny, greenish golden ones. Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking to myself how so many people think of raisins in a very particular way. And like I have a good friend who calls them humiliated grapes. And <laughs> they, they kind of have issues with raisins. So, for example, in that recipe... The rest, the finished recipe isn't super raisiny, right? Not at all. So I myself have issues with raisins. I might be okay with them in, in a scone, but I'm really not a raisin in baked goods person. So for me, it was about the using the flavor and the sweetness that the raisins have. And by the way, the flavor of the Hunza raisins is just a delicious, unique flavor. And so in the key lime pie, for instance, that's that's a custard and the raisins get completely obliterated into the into a puree uh, that becomes the custard. And same for, I use the raisins, I actually use raisins in my rice pudding recipe, but they also get pureed 
within the custard and you would never, I hesitate to say you would never know raisins are there because I don't want to shame raisins, but, but I, (laughs) but for, but for, but just know that in the cases that I use them in, it's really just flavor and a sweetness thing. And you don't at all get the texture that I think is usually the issue for people with raisins. You also use nut flowers and some interesting starch flowers as well to provide sweetness. Yeah, in my persimmon uh, bunt cake, I use a sweet potato flower, which complements the persimmon flavor. Well, I had to learn about these flowers and how much the strength of their flavors and sweet potato flour can be pretty overwhelming. So I use it very sparingly. And then chestnut flour is a great one. I I personally love chestnuts and they're naturally pretty sweet. So using that flour for something like crepes or cakes is just, it lends itself well to that. And people that are interested in gluten-free flours, it just happens to be one of them. Well, it's really an amazing book. You did this huge amount of work, and I can't wait to see how people react to it and start to riff off of it. It's kind of like this encyclopedia of a new way of thinking. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. Brian Levy is a pastry cook who was formerly with Bobbo. His new book of recipes is Good and Sweet, a new way to bake with naturally sweet ingredients. We've got a recipe for his persimmon and spice bundt cake with white chocolate ganache on our website. That's kcrw.com slash goodfood. Did you know that you can find any recipe you hear about on Good Food by going to kcrw.com slash goodfood? Those snickerdoodles you heard about earlier? Yep. Last week's Ethiopian collard green stew? Check. The charred leeks and the winter squash and agradolce from Via Carota? Yep. It's all there when you go to kcrw.com slash good food. So get cooking and let us know what you make. We love hearing from you. You can always tag or DM us on Instagram. We are at KCRW Good Food. In a minute, sweet potato buns with miso glaze for your Thanksgiving table. Yes, please. Legendary pastry chef Claudia Fleming joins me next when Good Food returns. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. Years ago, famed chef and pastry chef Nancy Silverton told me that she'd rather eat Claudia Fleming's desserts than her own. Claudia Fleming is the pastry chef who in the mid-1990s at Michelin restaurant Gramercy Tavern created the model of what restaurant fine dining desserts would be for decades to come. Her book, The Last Course, became a classic so sought after that until it was reissued in 2019, buyers had to pay a premium to get it. Now Claudia is giving us another gem, Delectable. Hi, Claudia. Hi, Evan. So good to hear you again. You too. It's often said of you that you have a great palate and a deranged sense of perfection. Did um, 
Did did that immersion in super detailed plates that you created at Gramercy Tavern change once you left Manhattan and you and your late husband, Chef Jerry Hayden, opened your restaurant on Long Island? It it did. And born of necessity, you know, when I when I worked at Gramercy Tavern, I had ten people on my staff. And when Jerry and I opened the North Fork Table and Inn, I had two. So it, um, you know, one figures out very quickly that uh, things need to be simplified. You know, the bells and whistles are nearly non-existent. What was one of the first tweaks you did to one of your older recipes that really made you happy? I have to say one of the great evolutions for the gingerbread cake, which so many people loved in the last course, made its way also into delectable as a layer cake, which I never, ever made in in restaurants. I never made layer cakes. So let's talk about, I would would love for you to talk about your thoughts about layer cakes and and why you avoided them for so long. (laughs) (laughs) Well, partly, I think, because a lot of what I did was deconstructing. And so I was taking elements and introducing them individually on a plate. And a layer cake is sort of a very tidy package. It's all right there. And so it didn't give me that expression of delving into elements and, you know, coaxing flavor and playing with different textures. They just seemed a little too one note to me. And, you know, American layer cakes tend to be really sweet, which was something I was always trying to lessen in a dessert. Um, you know, if there was an opportunity to take out a few ounces of sugar, I always did. A friend of mine has been bugging me about making her a coconut cake for like years now. And and because it's been so long and I haven't delivered, it's taken on this mythic, (laughs) (laughs) this mythic sense. And now I'm afraid. Tell me about yours so that I can be convinced that this is the one that I should just bang out for her. I think you should just bang it out. You know, it has coconut cream in it and it's super moist and delicious and kind of a no fail. Go for it. What, what What's the frosting like? You, you take us through kind of a frosting voyage in the book um, with many different kinds that you use for different situations. What What mm-hmm. is the frosting you rely on for the coconut cake? This was something that I... Discover well, I didn't discover it, but my business partner and dear friend Mary Moraz, every birthday made red velvet cake, and she didn't call it ermine frosting, she just called it white frosting. Uh, she is from uh, Kansas and grew up with this cake, and it was their celebration cake, and she oftentimes had you know, difficulty with it because you'd make a roux first, which is pretty challenging, you know, for someone who's just throwing together a birthday cake two or three times a year. 
And very often, you know, when someone offers me cake, I'm, I'm, I, no, thanks. Oh, no, thanks. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. I couldn't wait for her to make those darn cakes. I loved the frosting. It was fluffy and soft, but not at all sweet. I've never heard of ermine before. Yeah, I, I, you know, did some research and discovered that this is kind of the precursor to cream cheese before cream cheese was uh, very prevalent. And now we all use that incredibly stabilized product with a lot of sugar in it and just whip it. But this is whipped with butter and it just produces a fluffy, soft, creamy frosting that isn't terribly sweet. And is it pretty stable? Do you worry about the cake breaking down if it sits out for a bit? Uh, It's quite stable. It's very stable. Yeah, because, you know, there's flour in the roux, so that really helps uh, stabilize. I'd love to talk about cookies. I don't ever allow myself to have cookies because Mm -hmm. I eat all the cookies. But theoretically... (laughs) They're great for this time of year because we can all have a little bite if we know we're eating like a large meal. In your opinion, what makes a cookie great? I'm a huge fan of shortbread. I just love the tender, buttery. Oftentimes for me, it has nuts in it. They're intensely flavored and just have a very beautiful, sandy texture, and I could eat them forever. I'm so happy you went to shortbread, because you have three recipes for shortbread cookies that are quite different one from the other. You have a pecan olive shortbread that seems like the perfect holiday appetizer. Mm -hmm. One that's espresso with cocoa nibs, which I have way too much of in the house, so I'm definitely making those. And then a maple shortbread. So maybe just give us, you know, a a, a sentence or two about each one. The pecan olive is just a funny, I believe its origins are Provencal-esque. You know, they're slightly sweet. They do have some sugar in them, but the olive, the oil-cured olive, just kind of makes you tilt your head and it's kind of, hmm, what's that? And they're wonderful as aperit- with aperitifs. So those I like to think of a little bit more as, you know, pre-dinner snack, cocktail snack, as opposed to a dessert The espresso shortbread, I just really enjoy a almost bitter, I mean, it's like drinking a cup of espresso with wonderful texture to it, uh, and it lasts longer than an espresso. And the maple shortbread, which is made with maple sugar, is delightful. It's, It's delicate, it's super flavorful, Texturally, it's wonderful. And those, you could really eat a million of those. Those go down very, very easily. Maple to me is like a hug. Mm, I love that. As we look towards the holiday season, I can't even imagine inviting you over as a guest. What, what are you planning on bringing? What is your hostess gift 
I think I'm going to see my niece, who is a real traditionalist. I'm definitely going to bring the sweet potato buns. Might leave off the miso glaze until she approves or not. And I think I'm going to make a pumpkin pie or a squash pie. I don't generally make pumpkin pie. I usually make a cheese squash or or use cheese pumpkin or something, not traditional pumpkin. And we should say a cheese pumpkin is a variety of pumpkin. It isn't a pumpkin mixed with cheese. That, thank you for that clarification. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's just been so much fun to catch up with you, Claudia. And this book is really lovely. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you, Evan. So good to talk to you again. That was famed pastry chef and cookbook author Claudia Fleming. Her new book is Delectable, Sweet and Savory Baking. We have a recipe for her sweet potato rolls with miso glaze on our website. You know the link. It's kcrw.com slash goodfood. If you're like me, you've probably felt the pinch of inflation. Well, pretty much everywhere. The rising prices of the last couple of years are the most dramatic I've seen for decades. And nowhere does that hit harder, for me at least, than in the grocery store. And some of the ingredients where I'm feeling the most sticker shock are butter, sugar, eggs, and flour, the staples of baking. That's been tough on individual consumers. But for professional bakers like Nicole Recker, who owns fat and flour in the Grand Central Market, it can be a huge huge challenge to their business. Hi, Nicole. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Thank you for joining us. Um, let's talk hard numbers. How much has the cost of butter, flour, eggs, and sugar gone up in the last few years for you? Well, I pay most attention to the cost of butter um, because that is the one that's really gone out of control, butter and cream in particular. So that item in specific numbers has gone up over 100% in in a year and a half. In the beginning of 2020, an average like regular unsalted butter for 30 pounds was $65 for 30 pounds of butter. Today, that same butter, same 30 pounds unsalted regular butter is 127 as of this afternoon. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And just to give us an idea, how much do you go through in a week? Um, Probably like 60 pounds on an average week. And then during Thanksgiving, you know, add on a couple more cases. But we use two different kinds of butter. So we also use a European style butter with a higher butter fat. And that is $170 a case today for 36 pounds, and it was um, 85 a case in 2020. So double. And what about items like chocolate and vanilla and spices and and also fruit? Have you seen uptick in those prices? Some fruit I have seen an uptick in price, but not as much. Um, It's, uh, I think pumpkin might've seen a little bit of an increase. That one is kind of negligible. It's just a tiny little bump. Eggs, the price fluctuates so drastically throughout the year. I do know that eggs went up about 70% at the the peak and then they just recently went back down. It really depends on where 
they're coming from and what kind. There's so many varieties of eggs, more varieties than commodity butters. So that one's a little bit harder to track. Vanilla is extremely expensive right now. That one has gone up about 60% um, at the very least. Um, and, you know, there's vanilla bean paste or vanilla extract, um, you know, are the most affordable options for bakeries to use. And those have both gone up 60 to 70%. And you don't use them like home bakers. You're you're not using a teaspoon and that bottle isn't going to last you like a year. No, it's not. Uh, we go through we go through multiple bottles a month for sure. Um, chocolate. Chocolate has gone up not as much, maybe like 20 percent here and there. The main problem we've seen with chocolate for the last two years is that it has gapped frequently. So we will get the same kind of chocolate for a recipe, 72 percent then all of a sudden that chocolate is not available. And I've never experienced that in my professional career where a core item like 72% chocolate is no longer available, but it will become unavailable for two months at a time. And then we have to switch brands or we have to switch um, percentages. And that's not as noticeable in something like a chocolate chip cookie, but when you're making a brownie, that's incredibly noticeable. They behave differently. Wow. So what does it mean overall for the cost of your baked goods? Have you had to raise prices? And if so, how much? Yes, we have raised prices. Uh, we have participated in shrinkflation as a first stopgap measure. So we made things smaller and just reduced things a little bit so that it's not as noticeable, the reduction, but that does increase the price, but it's hidden, you know? So we did that first. We always try and see if we can like pull back on something first before raising the dollar price, because I do know that like participating in a rapid price increase across across the board, it scares people and it scares me and it doesn't make anyone feel good. But then at a certain point, the price of butter became so outrageously expensive. I had to raise the price, but I don't want to raise the price incrementally like 15 cents or 25 cents because I don't want to raise the price again in six months. So we just raise it a dollar on something like a cookie across the board. And that should cover us to weather the storm. And and what has the response been from customers? No one has said a single thing. Not a single thing wow. has been said on that kind of price increase. Um, I have had people comment on prices of pie because I think it's more noticeable when you see something become $50 when it was $45. What do you say to people who say, well, I can just get a pie for X amount of money at Costco? How can you charge (laughs) $45 or $50 for a pie? Uh, First, I tell them I grew up on pies like that. And uh, yeah, they can be really delicious. But then the other thing I say is, you know, we're a really small company. There are five people that work for us and everyone makes 19 to $20 an hour in their base wages. So it's a different scale than somebody like Costco. Even when we buy ingredients from our produce vendor, I have complained about the cost of things and mentioned, you know, a place like Restaurant Depot, which is sort of like a Costco for restaurants being cheaper. And my produce vendor will say, well, they're 12 times the size of our business. So they get to buy things for cheaper. There's a lot going on behind the scenes with these prices. And I don't quite understand all of it, but 
you know, it hits different people at different levels. Wow. Are there any recipes or tips you can give to our audience that might involve less butter or other expensive ingredients but are still tasty? Yes, definitely. I'm really into recycled or I say upcycled cookie crusts, buying either like day old cookies from a bakery or using some leftover cookies, you know, of different varieties and crushing them all up to make a pie crust instead of buying butter and making pie dough, I think is a solid move. I also am super duper in love with instant pudding mix because you don't need to use eggs in pudding if you're using instant pudding mix. And that sounds kind of like maybe, I don't want to say trashy, but like it's cheating. It definitely is cheating. But when you add good stuff to a basic vanilla pudding mix, it becomes an elevated, delicious item. Like if you made caramel and added it to vanilla pudding mix, you have like a butterscotchy pudding thing in a cookie crust. I think that sounds fantastic. And that the cost of making an item like that is so low because you're not using butter or eggs. What a great idea. Thank you so much, Nicole. You're welcome. That was pie savant and baker Nicole Rucker of Fat and Flour in the Grand Central Market in downtown LA. She's also the author of the fantastic cookbook, Dappled, Baking Recipes for Fruit Lovers, a cookbook. If you're in need of an apple pie recipe for your Thanksgiving table, her sour apple pie and dappled is hard to beat. The Market Report is on deck. Stay close. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. Let's head to the farmer's market now to see what's in season this rainy week in Southern California. Jillian Ferguson is in Santa Monica with this report. This is Jillian Ferguson with the Market Report. We are continuing today's baking theme here at the Santa Monica Farmer's Market with baker and pastry chef Sasha Pelagian. Sasha is the baker behind May Micro Bakery, where she offers custom cakes and Thanksgiving pies. And she's also responsible for the pastry case at Canyon Coffee in Echo Park. Hi, Sasha. Hi. So for bakers, it's never too early to think about Thanksgiving. I saw on your Instagram that your pie pans have arrived, so I know you're getting ready. What's on your Thanksgiving menu this year? Yeah, the pie pans have arrived. Um, This year, I have a mix of some old stuff from last year and some new things. So sweet potato and ginger is a new one. So I get sweet potato from her produce and I'm doing like uh, using their young ginger to make a ginger snap crust and then I have apple blackberry crumble classics and then I have a gluten-free chocolate mousse pie with a meringue crust. Mm. I do not think we see enough sweet potato pies. We see a lot of pumpkin pie this time of year so let's focus on that and walk us through all the different components. I like it because it's like a little bit of a twist on a pumpkin and I feel like it gets not a bad wrap but just like People think it's like too different sometimes. So I like it because it's like a little sweet from the sweet potato, obviously, and then spicy from the ginger. So my crust is basically like a graham cracker, but a ginger snap. So it's got like tons of ground ginger and like fresh grated young ginger. And then I'm also candying the ginger to use as decoration on top. And then obviously it's filled with sweet potato custard, which is just like so velvety and like luxurious in the way that like a pumpkin pie would be. But I don't know, I feel like it's extra creamy. Mm. Yeah, I think of sweet potatoes as having 
a little bit more oomph, a little more texture than a, yes. than a pumpkin. Yes, totally. And is there dairy in the custard? There is heavy cream in the custard. <laughs> Which makes it so delicious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that like adds to the extra creamy, silky, velvety, yeah. Absolutely. And I know they have the purple sweet potato and the orange sweet potato on the table this year. Which one are you using? I'm using orange. It must look like a pumpkin pie. It does look like a pumpkin pie. So maybe you can trick some people into <laughs> thinking it's a pumpkin pie. I have used the purple in the past, which are also delicious. And probably really fun visually. So, so fun. So we were talking a little bit about pumpkin there. I know that you have a pumpkin cake on the menu at Canyon Coffee too. Can you just briefly tell us about that? Yeah, that loaf is very exciting. So it's kombucha squash from Garden of, and we roast it, process it, and it gives such a vibrant orange color to the loaf. It's loaded with cinnamon, mace, and cardamom and has like a pepita cardamom crumble on top. It's really, really good. Mm, that sounds so good. Why kabocha? I just think it's like a little sweeter than a pumpkin and the color is just, it's like a different sort of orange from a pumpkin. So it, it's, it's like neon, yeah. I guess, you know? It does kind of glow. Yeah. yeah, it glows. So when we process it, it's just so vibrant and the color bakes through. It's a really beautiful loaf. So any ambitious bakers listening who might be interested in processing their own pumpkin this year for either a pumpkin cake or a pumpkin loaf, is that hard to do? It's not hard. I would say it's just time intensive because of the steps to do it. What I do is just cut it in half, scoop the seeds out and roast them flat like so they steam and then, you know, process it through the food processor. Sometimes I add like a little more water if it's feeling a little dry just to even the texture out. That's the hardest part is just the processing. And I imagine that you have to peel it when it comes out of the oven. Yes, you do have to peel it when it comes out of the oven. Don't burn your fingers. Um, yeah, but that's the hardest part, but the payoff is worth it. Absolutely. So where can people order these Thanksgiving pies this year? If you head to my Instagram, sashimi1, there's a link in there that will send you to my website where you can pre-order your pie. And the pickup is going to be at Canyon Coffee. Perfect. So you can get your kabocha loaf and your sweet potato pie. Yep. Thank you, Sasha. Thank you, Jillian. That was Sasha Pelligian. You can find her baked goods every day at Canyon Coffee in Echo Park. And as she said, she's offering Thanksgiving pie pre-orders through May Micro Bakery. Follow her at Sashimi1 on Instagram. That's Sashimi with the number one after it. John Herr is one of the farmers who brings sweet potatoes to the market this time of year, and that's who Sasha's buying her sweet potatoes for, for her sweet potato pie. And John, I'm looking at three different sweet potatoes right now that you've brought to market. Maybe you can just go through and tell us about each one. Yeah, I have the orange flesh, like a traditional creamier texture garnets, and then the purple Japanese, a little drier texture, not as sweet. And then your most popular one is the Murasaki white flesh Japanese, sweeter, has like a chestnut flavor. Mm. They each have different qualities. What do you use each of these sweet potatoes for in your house? I kind of just mix them up, roast them up. The purple, a little dry, so we usually just uh, boil it, eat it that way. That way it's not as dry, but roasting is like the most popular way. And talk to us about the season for these, because I know you have them for much of the year. When do you plant them? When do you harvest them? And how do you keep them? We plant them in uh, March, and then they'll be ready late August, and then we'll have them all the way until, like, February. Uh -huh. 
and then storage. It'll, it's after you dig them out, or when it, if it rains a lot, it's only gonna last like another month after that. After you dig it out, so. Did you get rain this past week? Yeah, but uh, we haven't been watering it for like the last month, so I was like barely enough water. But if it gets colder and more wet, they'll they'll start rotting. In in the ground, they'll start yeah, in rotting. The ground. But okay. we try not to we try not to dig in storage. It. So you're digging so these fresh like every time before you yeah. come to market. Yep. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> that is incredible. And um, how do you know that they're ready to harvest? Late August, and then we we, we just dig some out, some test. Yeah. <laughs> do you celebrate Thanksgiving at your house? Yep. Are there going to be sweet potatoes on your menu? Nope. <laughs> oh, so what are you having? Uh, not sure. Every year is a little different, but it's pretty traditional stuff. I do. I'm more of a regular potato guy. Oh, that's oh, great. Okay. I love that. All right, John. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. That was John Her of Her Produce. They come down from Fresno every single Wednesday to be at the Wednesday Santa Monica Farmers Market. For the Market Report, I'm Jillian Ferguson. If you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, Elena Shatkin, Desmond Taylor, Nick Lamponi, and PJ Shahamat. And special thanks to Chrissy Van Meter, Laura Kondarajan, and Gary Messiha. With Thanksgiving on the horizon and pumpkins in the market, I've been thinking about one of my favorite fall recipes from Dory Greenspan. It's called Dory's Pumpkin Stuffed with Everything Good. Imagine a burnished whole pumpkin filled with oozy cheese, broth, chunks of bread, and greens, almost like a fondue with the bread already in it. It's gorgeous. And we've got the recipe and my conversation with Dory on our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood. I'm Evan Kleiman. I'll meet you back here next week for our Thanksgiving episode of Good Food.